Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder, produced by the Boulder Media Group. And, folks, you're going to have to excuse my voice today. I'm fighting a little bit of laryngitis. You know, we're anxious to share some news about some of our upcoming projects a little bit later. But first, let's get this show started because it's a good one. Coming up in just a moment, one of the most inspirational people that I've ever been around, and Bill and I are looking forward to introducing him to you. And, you know, it doesn't even stop there. We are also going to talk to end. NBC News foreign correspondent Brad Willis. And not only is he going to tell us why he became Bava Ram, but how the transformation to him saved his life and... We will meet someone else as well. Yeah, we're going to speak to a woman who lives near the Arctic Circle, where her mission is very simple, folks. She just wants to survive. Also, a major dose of inspiration from a nationally known triathlete who lost both arms in an electrical accident. All of that coming up today on Growing Boulder. I got to tell you, the greatest part of this job is constantly getting to introduce you to interesting and inspirational people. And our next guest is both and then some. He's one of the world's elite mountaineers, one of only nine Americans to summit both Everest and K2. He's led nearly 200 international expeditions, and he's the founder and CEO of EarthTrex, a company that owns and operates one of America's largest chains of indoor climbing centers. Yeah, Bill, he's also a renowned leadership expert who specializes in building high-performance teams. He trains Fortune 100 execs, Super Bowl champions, covert ops teams for the U.S. government, and Wharton MBA students. He's the author of High Altitude Leadership, What the World's Most Forbidding Peaks Teach Us About Success, and... He led the recent Survivor Summit that I was a part of, guiding 16 novice climbers, including four cancer survivors, including our own Wendy Chioji, to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, the highest freestanding mountain in the world. Welcome, Chris Warner. Hey, Chris, how are you? Great, Mark and Bill. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, man, we're thrilled to talk to you. And before we get to Kili, uh, we understand you just got back from Ecuador. What were you doing there? Uh, well, this is actually the 15th year that we've led Warden students down uh, on a peak called Cotopaxi, which is 19,350 feet tall, and it's a leadership expedition. So our goal is to create a high-performance team so that when they're in the workplace, they have a yardstick to compare their future teams against, and we achieved that goal. We were able to get 100% to the summit in incredibly difficult conditions, and everybody learned a ton along the way about how to lead teams. Chris, as the guy who did not summit Kilimanjaro here in this conversation, I have watched everything I could find about you on YouTube, and you are a monster. It's incredible to, to listen to your lectures and, and to see how you work with people and groups. And, and it kind of seemed to me like, like high-altitude mountaineering, it, it seemed to either bring out the best in people or the worst in people. What, what's, what is it about that? Well, I, I mean, you, physiologically, of course, you know, we're brought to our very edge. So some of us become more, you know, reptilian, literally. I mean, they, they say that the, above 8,000 meters, you enter what's called a death zone. And at that point, there's so little oxygen that the frontal lobe of your brain where all the critical thinking happens just stops functioning. So <clears throat> when you can't think like a human being, you know, you're thinking like, you know, a lesser evolved being. And people in that situation tend to be overcome by, you know, powerful feelings as opposed to logic. So it becomes much more difficult to act kind of in a moral or ethical way. Um, it just becomes, you know, more a fight every man for himself. So but clearly there's a lot of us that can rise above that. And the same thing happens really in any kind of super stressful situation that we're put in. You know, if we're uh, we can either be at our highest functioning level when when things are terrible or we can be at our most dysfunctional level when things are terrible. And you know, luckily for me, I have whatever gene that allows me to be, you know, pretty ethical and highly functioning in those terrible situations. Chris, Survivor Summit was really a group of totally inexperienced climbers. Many of us had never even been camping. Uh, everyone yeah. on the trip said the same thing. It was the most difficult thing by far they had ever done, and yet everyone made it to the summit, which is not easy to do. Uh, in your estimation, is, is getting to the summit critical? I mean, you mentioned that about Ecuador. What determines success on a mountain to you? 
Well, there's, you know, there's a, a, a the philosopher king of mountaineering is, in the United States is a guy named Willie Unsold, and he used to say that an expedition is not a success when you reach the top, but when you come home and apply what you've learned to life back at home. And, and that's really my true belief. I mean, we could lose the battle but win the war, right? We could fail in reaching the summit of Kilimanjaro, but we could have learned so much about ourselves that we can go back home and be infinitely better people. So I think we do have to be a little bit careful of putting too much um, you know, value on the accomplishment of summoning and really put the value where it matters, which is on the partnership aspect of it. So, you know, just in life, you know, partnerships always trump, trump accomplishments. I mean, we'd much rather be surrounded by friends on our deathbed than a bunch of trophies. So, you know, why we succeeded on Kilimanjaro and why this other group succeeded on Cotopaxi was because they really put partnerships first. And it was, you know, all the love, the caring, the trust that they had in each other that allowed everybody to get to the summit. Chris, I know you spend a lot of time talking about leadership, counseling, people in the business world, too. What are the parallels? What are those lessons that, that you can pull out of mountain climbing that apply to life? Well, it's simple. It's that behaviors drive results. You know, we all have, you know, like, listen, at everybody's desk, they have a computer, right? So everybody has the same tool that they're competing with, right? And chances are we have very similar, you know, business techniques. We have similar financial models. We have similar R&D plans, et cetera. But in the end, you take a group of people that are under-resourced on tools and techniques, but they have better behaviors, and they're going to win. They're going to create market share. They're going to create better products, and they're going to be happier. And it's the same thing whether you're climbing a mountain or if you're you know, running a business or managing your family or whatever else relationship is that, you know, behaviors are the number one drivers of results. Luckily, the conversation has changed dramatically in business, and people recognize that. I mean, we're really being pushed by the millennials to be much more focused on behaviors than we are on, you know, kind of the, the hygiene things like big salaries and, you know, employee of the month parking spots. Folks, we're talking with Chris Warner, who is one of the top mountaineers in the world and who has parlayed, leveraged, if you will, what he's learned on mountains to become one of the top uh, leadership experts anywhere. And we mentioned you specialize in building high-performance groups, Chris, and also that you've worked with covert ops teams. Can you tell us more about that, or would you have to kill us? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so the cool thing in leadership right now is everybody recognizes that we need to build better leaders, and we need to build these leaders faster than we have been building them. You know, I started in leadership education. The argument was, um, are leaders born or made? Well, we've, we've, we've kind of gotten past that argument, and we realized that we have to learn how to make them. So whether you're, um, you know, leading a covert ops team or leading a business, you, you really the, – the, the cost – of failure is so great clearly on a covert ops you know level you know failure results in death and or you know international uh you know conflict so we we have to be successful in those situations and i prefer to work with amazing teams and helping them get one tenth of one percent better than working with completely dysfunctional teams there's you know there's so many dysfunctional teams out there and it's just, you know, it's too stressful for me. It's, I see too little progress when I'm working with those guys. So, you know, having a choice, I'd rather work with the best of the best. Something else that was interesting, uh, almost the opposite of that, is I was talking to Mark and Wendy a lot, and I said, well, what was the most important thing? What helped you get to the top? And I thought, you know, maybe it was not Chris Warner, but John Lennon that led him to the top. They go, all you need is love. Are you putting me on yeah. love? What's love got to do with it? <laughs> You know, I do. I grew up in New Jersey. I prefer the fact that I'm a little bit of a hard ass. So let's not, you know, pin me as the guy preaching love all the time. But the truth is that it's about partnership. And the two most important words in partnership is trust and caring. And, you know, we've all been in situations before where, you know, we've been in relationships where the trust fades away or the amount of caring fades away. And that relationship ultimately fails. So, you know, the more we really focus on what makes a loving relationship work, the more likely we are to be successful. Chris, we've got a couple of minutes left, but uh, I, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk more about Survivor Summit and, and Livestrong yeah. because you obviously seem to have a great affinity for these two groups, as do they for you. What is it that, that makes this association so powerful, and, and why will you continue working with them? Well, you know, Mark, we all have limited amount of bandwidth, and, you know, I think just like everybody, you know, at my age, we're 
you know, we're inundated with opportunities. So it's really trying to pick the few that where you can really make a difference. And I'm not a crier, but I've been on two of these Survivor Summit trips, and both times I've cried after or during it. And and that means that something really deeply personal is happening for me. Like I'm I am getting more back from that experience than I'm giving. And you you, you know. In all the opportunities that come my way, I'd rather be in a situation where I'm forced to grow. And the Survivor Summit trips absolutely forced me to grow. And, you know, look, look, we had four cancer survivors. We had other people who lost family members to cancer up there. And all everybody had a life-enriching experience. And that is a gift to be part of something like that. You know, it keeps us humble. It fills our soul. You know, it satisfies us in a way that a lot of other work would never be able to satisfy us. So now that I've, you know, had the doors been open to allow me to participate in those things, I, I can't imagine ever, you know, not taking advantage of that, you know, emotional gift that it gives me. Well, let me say it was a gift that you guys allowed me to tag along. And folks, I took a camera, I shot a documentary, and full disclosure, I shot a lot up until summit night, at which point Chris Warner took the camera from my hand just as he took the pack off my back because I was barely able to function. Chris, you shot some phenomenal video as we climbed that final night. I can tell you the documentary we're putting together is going to be stunning. Uh, Wendy has seen some of the script. She's excited about it, and we can't wait Uh to share our experience with the world. Hey, Chris, we got to go. Thank you so much, folks. You know, we haven't even mentioned this guy produced the first ever reality TV show on Everest. He hosted a program for the History Channel. He filmed and starred in an Emmy-nominated film about his successful summit of K2, which is why we're going to get you back, Chris. He may be the world's most interesting man, folks. Check out his website, chriswarner.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Survivor Summit, head to survivorsummit.org. And, of course, livestrong.org as well. Chris, you're a cool dude, buddy. Thank you. Coming up, she's devoted her entire retirement, including every single day and all of her money, to care for abandoned exotic animals, and she couldn't be happier about it. That's next on Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton here on Growing Boulder. And something we hear all the time is volunteers get paid in satisfaction, and it's something that money can't buy. Well, Julia Sanchez certainly wouldn't argue with that. Retirement isn't what she imagined. It's better than she ever thought it could be. Long hours and hard work with no pay never felt so good. The Back to Nature Wildlife Refuge takes care of just about any animal that needs help, from goats to gophers, from raccoons to owls. Can they come in? And they couldn't do it without the help of volunteers like Julia Sanchez. What is that? I think it's a rat. Are they tasty? Very. Well, this is hardly a, a typical retirement. You could be sitting on the couch watching TV. No, feeling sorry for myself. <laughs> and say... Oh, I'm bored. I'm depressed. No, I'm not bored. If I have a headache, I don't pay attention to it. If I'm sick, I don't pay attention to it. For many times, I've been here very, very sick with my bones, old bones and all that. I'm limping, you know, this and that, but I'm still moving along. Julia not only feeds the animals, she cleans their cages and more. It's difficult manual labor at any age. Yeah, we do all this cleaning, so clean that you can leave yourself in the place. How old are you? You, you guess first. All right, I'm going to guess that you're 62. How about 79? Are you really 79? 79 holding. And how much do you get paid to work here? Oh, they kill me here, really, right? 
<laughs> Nothing. Why do you do it? We are volunteers. We all are volunteers. All those birds that you see everywhere, they are volunteers. It wasn't for volunteers who will take care of the animals. Animals are my priority. Come on, it's painful. Some animals, like this Arctic fox and these Madagascar lemurs, were purchased as pets and then discarded. Since they can't live on their own, they'll spend their entire lives here. Others are here to be rehabbed or nurtured and released. And people, they say, don't you feel bad releasing animals that you raise from babies? No, I feel happy, happy that they are free. Julia knows every animal and knows what they like. In fact, she dips into her dwindling retirement funds to buy treats like dates and raisins. But right now, but I still do it. I say instead of spending this money going to the movies, I spend the money on my animals. Anything that I think they might use it, I just buy it. It's clear what they get out of it, the animals, but what does Julia get out of it? Oh, I want to say the right word, but it doesn't come. My misatisfaction. Misatisfaction. That I'm helping some, some helpless animals. Like many her age, Julia Sanchez finds personal fulfillment in volunteering. It gives her life meaning, something to look forward to each and every day. I never used to worry about getting old. Right now, I'm worried because I said, who's going to take care of the animals? I want to live forever so I can take care of the animals. Isn't she something, and isn't that something that we all want in our lives, something that we can live for, something that gets us up in the morning that we believe in and enjoy and, most importantly, gives us purpose? Yeah, we hear it all the time, Mark, volunteering, helping others, or in this case, helping animals, means as much to the volunteer as it does to those who are being helped. So if you feel like something's missing in your life and you don't know what it is, try volunteering for an organization whose mission you believe in. It just might give you the special something to get out of bed for. You know, one thing we've learned from our thousands of Growing Boulder interviews is that those who are truly happy as they age are able to laugh at life's many frustrations and celebrate life's countless blessings. Or, as Key Howard says, ain't life grand? You've probably heard the expression, the less you say, the better off you are. Well, if you haven't heard this story, it's the absolute classic example of knowing when to keep your mouth shut. Farmer Joe was in an accident with a big semi and decided to sue the trucking company. At the hearing, the trucker's lawyer said, Now, didn't you say, Joe, at the scene of the accident that you were fine? Joe said, Well, you see, uh, I just put my old mule Bessie into the trailer. The lawyer interrupted, I'm not asking for details. Did you or did you not say, I'm fine? And once again, Joe tried to explain about his mule when the lawyer appealed to the judge to get Joe to simply answer his question. But by now, the judge was interested in Joe's explanation, and he allowed him to proceed. Joe said, well, as I was saying, I was trying to load Bessie into the trailer and was driving down the highway when this semi ran the light and smacked right into the side of my truck. I was thrown into one ditch, Bessie was in another. I was hurting real bad, and I didn't want to move. I could hear a highway patrolman on the scene, and I could hear Bessie moaning and groaning. Well, the officer went over, took one look at Bessie, took out his gun, and shot her between the eyes. Then he came across the road to where I was with his gun in his hand. He looked down, and he said to me, Your mule was in such bad shape, I had to shoot her. How are you feeling? <laughs> Till next time, this is Key Howard. Ain't life grand? Great story. Doesn't he remind you of Paul Harvey? You know, Key Howard's already had an amazing career as an actor, writer, producer, director, and musician who worked with Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Dinah Shore, Nat King Cole, Don Rickles, and on and on. But now, in his mid-80s, here he is with Growing Boulder. Coming up, the amazing transformation from network war correspondent to author, yoga expert, and guru. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. 
wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton, and you're listening to Growing Boulder. Our next guest is a former Network News war correspondent. He won the prestigious DuPont Award for his work inside Afghanistan during the Soviet occupation. But his career was abruptly ended after a broken back, followed by a failed surgery, left him permanently disabled and in a body brace. Yeah, and it only got worse from there, folks. He was later diagnosed with stage 4 throat cancer related to exposure to uranium in the Gulf War. And at that point, he was basically told by his doctors to get his affairs in order because he had little to no chance of survival. He could have just given up, but instead he got up and he cured himself with an amazing transformation. He's the author of Warrior Pose, How Yoga Literally Saved My Life. Welcome, Brad Willis, a.k.a. Baba Ram. Hey, Baba, how are you? Good morning, Mark and Bill. It's nice to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Man, we appreciate your time. Um, And you were, by your own account, Baba, a mess, literally on death's bed, heavily medicated, depressed, immobile, and dying of cancer. And that's when you had this moment with your little boy that changed everything. What happened? What inspired you to get up? Well, my little boy had become my whole life. I was so pickled on drugs and alcohol and self-pity and depression that I'd pushed everyone else out of my life. But he was the only light in my life. And just after he turned two years old, he finally realized daddy is sick and dying. And he looked at me trembling one morning as I was splayed out on the couch in my body brace and pleaded with me three little words that changed my whole life. He said, get up, daddy. And it really, it hit me in a place that I didn't know that I had. This mantra went through my mind for the next three weeks. How do I get up? How do I get up? And finally, I decided to detox off all the 14 years of heavy medications that had made me such a dark, dark soul. And one day, someone would tell my little boy, your daddy died with dignity. And that led me to a journey where ultimately uh, a jaded, cynical ex-journalist found mind-body spirit medicine, and everything changed. Boy, you sure make it sound so easy. It could not have been, though. How how did you begin? I mean, what made you decide, well, maybe meditating will help or fasting instead of just having that cynical negative attitude and saying, well, there's nothing I can do, son. I'm done for. Well, my boy cracked open a place in my heart, really a deeper conversation with, with who we all really are at what I call the soul or the spirit level. And after I detoxed, seven or eight nights cold turkey in the hospital, which I can tell you all of the demons in Dante's Inferno checked into the room with me. And I crawled out of there and they invited me into an experimental program, a pain program with ancient Eastern and holistic Western applications that could help me. They hoped with the pain, but not with the cancer. And it was like a lifeline for me. And in the very beginning, the first thing I did is called biofeedback, where they take all your vital signs with electrodes. And I listened to a 20-minute meditation. And that was the second thing that changed my life. By the end of that 20 minutes, I felt a different inner taste in my body, a different chemistry. And all of my vital signs smoothed out. They had been you know, signs of stress and anxiety before. And here they were smooth and rhythmic. And that's when I started to realize that I couldn't just let healthcare happen to me, that I had to take charge of my life and in my own way, maximize my healing potential. And I no longer needed to do it for my individuated ego-based self. I needed to do it for that little boy. Folks, we're talking with Baba Ram, the former network news correspondent by the name of Brad Willis, who has written a fascinating memoir, Warrior Pose, How Yoga Literally Saved My Life. Uh, And Baba, when you began yoga, I think it's important for people to know that you really weren't the star of the class. You were uh, a complete beginner with little, if any, ability, right? Well, I was the most crippled up guy and 80 pounds overweight. But I soon learned when I started therapeutic yoga at that center that 
there was much more to it. I was staying in a nearby hotel. I had the ancient texts of yoga sent to me there, and I learned that it's a complete science of how to be a human being, that yoga postures, what we think of as yoga in the West, is just a very small part of this whole practice. It's about aligning your mind and your body and your spirit together as one. And you know, I became vegan. I called it my organic chemotherapy. I fasted for long periods of time. That's also yoga. I took 80 pounds off my body, which helped cure the cancer. And I took about a thousand pounds of emotional darkness off my body as well and started cultivating gratitude and forgiveness and compassion and acceptance instead of self-pity and anger and fear and blame. Well, you almost answered what I was thinking of asking you, Bhavaram. I was going to ask how different or similar you are to Brad Willis. I mean, you know, do your TV friends still know you? Do they say that you've changed a ton, or, or is Brad still there somewhere? Well, um, I'm still the same person, but I think a lot of the rough edges are gone. I've learned not to identify myself uh, through my ego. I've learned to try to cultivate on a daily basis, uh, despite you know having been a type A foreign correspondent, uh, humility, service to others. I wrote this book, Warrior Post, because I believe, and it's been my experience now as the founder of Deep Yoga, and working with thousands of students and clients, that we all have this power inside of us to turn all of our obstacles into opportunities, to heal to our, our maximum capacity, to ultimately manifest our fullest potential and in our own humble way to serve the world. And that's really what I feel devoted to now. It's one of the reasons my my name has changed because I just see there's no looking back. I've completely embraced this this wisdom of yoga and its sister science of Ayurveda and devoted my life to helping others empower themselves and heal and enter a state of vibrancy and harmony. Uh, it's obvious listening to you, Baba, that your motivation is not for a claim or money. That said, uh, you are getting a lot of attention, so much so, in fact, that Warrior Pose is, is out now. And already, uh, if, you, if you believe uh, what you read online, under contract with a Hollywood-based film company that intends to make, make a feature film out of it. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's pretty exciting, um, mostly because I think it helps spread the message to a wider audience. Oftentimes when we are in these practices, such as yoga and Ayurveda, we're preaching to the choir. And I think the important thing is to reach out to a broader audience and let everyone know that there's a real science here that can help them find what they're after. We all need to reduce the stress in our lives. We all need to think better and eat better and feel more inner peace. And this is really a pathway to that. It's very practical and pragmatic. And I hope the movie inspires other, you know, I've heard from people around the world now who say the book has inspired them to make changes in their life. And again, that's the reason that I wrote it. And if the movie takes that even further, well, then I'll feel blessed. Baba, you, you had to change. I mean, you were laying there. You, you, you had nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to go. Can the rest of us make that change in our last 30? How tough is it to do what you did? Well, you know, it's uh, suffering always is the catalyst for positive change. When things are going pretty well, we tend to get a little bit lazy. And we all have this power. Anyone listening that's facing you know, tremendous health challenges there is a way out. You do have an inner power. You do have self-discipline, even if you think you don't. And my invitation is don't wait until it got as bad as it did for me. Uh, I really got pounded down because I wasn't listening uh, to the messages that were being sent to me. And if you take charge of your life now and take gentle and loving steps in a more positive direction and listen to your, your deeper inner voice, miracles will start to happen in your life. And it feels so good after a while. There's just no turning back. Your story is, is fascinating. And thank you. Thank you so much for sharing it. I mean, it really makes us all think the book is a great one. Warrior Pose, How Yoga Literally Saved My Life. Check that out. You can learn more at Bhava, B-H-A-V-A, Ram, R-A-M, dot com. The incredible story of Bhava Ram. Thanks for sharing. Coming up next, a woman who lives alone near the Arctic Circle. Life Below Zero is next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... 
Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. You know, we love guests that are far out. This one uh-huh. may be farther out than anybody we've ever had, at least out in the middle of nowhere, because she lives in the remote wilderness of Alaska. She owns and operates the Kavik River Camp, which is a base for hunting groups. Get this, she lives 500 miles from the nearest city and 80 miles from the nearest road. And she's done this for something like, what, 11 years? I can't even imagine that. And obviously, winter in that location is about one thing and one thing only, and that is survival. And if it all sounds like it should be a television show, well, guess what? It is. It's called Life Below Zero, and it appears weekly on the National Geographic Channel. Welcome from her home, 197 miles north of the Arctic Circle, Sue Aiken. Hey, Sue, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Man, what's the temperature there? You know, it's yeah, I'm having kind of an unseasonably warm uh, temperature right now. I'm hanging out in my T-shirt and shorts. It's about 10 degrees above zero right now. <laughs> you know, we mentioned you run a hunting camp, which is very busy during the hunting season. But from October to May, we hear that you're all alone. Do you get lonely? What do you do for fun? Uh, well, first off, I'd like to say I don't run a hunting camp. It's uh, sort of like a really remote and twisted bed and breakfast. <laughs> Hunting compromises the people that, you know, the majority of the people in August, maybe a little bit of September, but the rest of the time it's uh, ologists, bird watchers, uh, a lot of ecotourism. Yeah, pe- um, people just looking for fun in the middle of nowhere. Well, at the top of nowhere. The middle is about 300 miles that's so cool. You know, the the show is is re- is really interesting. You know, the the plot of Life Below Zero is pretty straightforward. It follows your daily routine as you battle, you know, things that most of us wouldn't even think about like the bitter cold, the unpredictable weather, the hungry wildlife. I mean, I, you are so out there. Do you even have a TV? Is there reception? Can you watch your own show? Well, you know, when I first got here, I am a mother and a grandmother, and uh, when I decided to become, you know, when I decided to procreate, um, and, and you're married, you know, you my, my spouse, uh, the kid's father, tried life in Alaska my way, and that kind of blew his mind, so I tried life down in the real world his way, and that blew mine, so when the kids got older... Uh, we parted, you know, he, we, we laughed in bed one night, and he said, you know, Sue, you're more Grizzly Adams, I'm more John Wayne. This ain't cutting it. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so we stayed best friends, but uh, we divorced, and, and when my kids got older, I went back to being Jungle Jane. But, um, you know, I love it. I love the isolation, even as a little tiny kid, you know, in, in the early 60s when they asked me what I want to be when I grow up, I, was, I always said lighthouse keeper. So the isolation works for me. You know, I think some of us could relate to this up to the point that we are actually attacked by a grizzly bear and have to sew ourselves back together. But that, in fact, is what happened to you a few years back, isn't it? Mark, you you said she stitched herself up. She stitched herself back together, I believe. Let's find out. What happened, Sue? Yeah, you can still feel where the teeth went into my head. (laughs) And that was, uh, you know, I laid here 10 days before a pilot found me. And uh, that 10 days, um, the hips were torn out of the socket, the spine was compromised, I couldn't reach the air to ground or the phone. Um, oh, and by, you asked me uh, about the Internet. Yeah, back when I first got here, nobody was doing Internet on the North Slope, but that is how I'm talking to you now. I have a satellite dish pointed at the bedrock to bounce the signal to get over the curvature of the Earth, and that's how I communicate. But uh, at the time of the attack, I couldn't reach any of my communication methods, and I laid here 10 days listening to animals chew on other animals, wondering if they'd uh, make it through the tent wall and and would it be my last. That wasn't enough to turn you a little more John Wayne than Grizzly Adams? You know, I, I when I got back, I didn't know how I would react the first time a grizzly charged me, which, I mean, and it will happen. I I live in their world, not the other way around. 
But uh, when it happened, um, I dropped into automatic mode and handled it. And uh, so I, I was—I decided I was a good candidate to keep doing what I do. So what now, happened? The minute I shy away and hesitate, then that's the time I need to maybe find a, you know, move 100 miles further south where it's a little bit cozier. Folks, we're talking to Sue Aiken, who lives uh, 170 miles north of the Arctic Circle. She is the subject of a reality show on the National Geographic Channel. Sue, what happened to the bear after he attacked you? Did you ever see him again? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and there there is an there is an episode. Uh, the season starts again, and I can't tell you what happens, but uh, we tango, and only one of us gets dipped. <laughs> Man, Sue, you are you know amazing. This show is called Growing Bolder, and we talk to people, you know, mostly over forty, who are you know living their dream and following their passion. And you're such a great example. You're you know you're not a kid, and look what you're doing. Can you talk to us about how you've been you know able to live such a bold life? How do you do that? You know, I mean, on, on one side of the scale, how do I view it? You know, like you say, I'm no longer a kid. I'll be 51 this year. But um, the way I view myself is uh, I see absolutely no reason that I have to graduate kindergarten. I get snacks and naps and what's not to love. So I, I view myself as this eternal child. My curiosity is probably my greatest asset. And uh, I'm lucky enough to live a lifestyle where I tell me what I want to do and I tell me what the clock is I punch and, and, and not somebody else. We love people, Sue, that are smashing uh, stereotypes of all kinds, uh, I- including the stereotypes of age. As you mentioned, you'll be 51 this year. How long do you think that you can enjoy uh, the lifestyle that you're living right now? And, uh, and if not forever, where will you move to next? You know, I, I don't think about how long will I be here, how, you know, I suppose if I uh, if I get hurt again real good, um, you know, I had the bear attack and then uh, survived that. A couple of years ago, I busted my leg in three places, worked on it for a year before I went, yeah, that probably needs surgery. Um, if I get hurt again real good, you know, my body breaks instead of bending anymore then I may have to rethink what I'm doing. But I, I've got a raven personality anyhow. There may be an any given day something shiny over the hill that I just can't resist. <laughs> so I, I, I don't qualify my life saying I can't do it because I'm not ready. I'm always ready, and I will go do it. Sue, so talk to us because your philosophy of life is so different and so interesting. Tell us, what can we learn from you? What do you what's your message? Well, you know, that's kind of a unique question because uh, – I hope people take what they need if they need something, you know, glean something from what I do. But I don't really live my life worrying too much about what other people think about me. So um, there's nothing I want to teach other people. But if by my living my life the way I do, they glean something that they can get from it, you know, that that's a pretty cool set of beans right there. Anytime, I don't care if it's a person living on a park bench um, and homeless, there is something in every person that we can learn from. And, uh, and, and maybe there's something in me that somebody needs to hear. And, Sue, you obviously are a bigger-than-life character. Uh, uh, you're the kind of person that we now want to meet in person. Is that what's happening? Has a television show led people to want to come visit you? You know, I get about 1,000 emails a day, and um, I try to answer at least two to 400 a day personally. And that's new for me. I'm not used to sitting inside that uh, that much. But I do care. You know, just because I prefer to live alone doesn't mean I'm not social. I'm just social on my own terms. Uh, there is an interest in a lot of people wanting to come out. Um, this can be an expensive place to get to. So, you know, it's always tempered with that. But, uh, you know, one of my largest bases of consistent uh, talking to people are children. I get a tremendous amount of kids. That's incredible. we got to run now because, you know, it's long distance to where you are near the Arctic Circle. You're amazing, and the show is great. It's called Life Below Zero. Check out the amazing Sue Aiken.
coming up. If you're looking for inspiration, boy, have you come to the right place. Our next guest is the founder of DontStopLiving.org, and when you see what he's had to overcome, you're going to understand why his motto is, no excuses. This is Growing Bolder. Village kept me hungry The music kept me high The party kept on going Till I thought I'd die But a voice inside Sang so sweet and low Said it's on and on And on and on Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton, and that is Bill Schaefer. And time now for our surviving and thriving interview with the right kind of care and support and, of course, the right attitude. It's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to actually thrive in the aftermath. And, Bill, our next guest, is an amazing example of that. Oh, I think you are exactly right on that count, Mark. He's a guy who lost both of his arms in an electrical accident 22 years ago. And you know how that goes. I mean, he could have given up on his dreams, but he did not. Instead, he battled back. And today, he's a nationally known motivational speaker. He's a triathlete, a husband, a father, and a grandfather. Let's welcome Hector Picard. How are you, Hector? I'm pretty good. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Before we talk about what an amazing athlete you are and what an amazing organization you started, tell us a little bit about your accident, But because it sounds like you were pretty lucky even to survive it. Uh, yeah, um, 22 years ago, I was working as an electrician on a substation transformer, and um, I got hit twice with uh, 13,000 volts. Uh, went through my right arm, out my right foot, and then it hit me again through my left arm and out my left hip. Uh, suffered second and third degree burns over 40% and uh, resulted in the, uh, the amputation of my entire right arm and half my left. How bad were you mentally? psychologically, spiritually at that moment, Hector? Obviously, physically, you were a complete mess. How long did it take you to know that you, in fact, had what it took to bounce back? I mean, right from the beginning, um, I, I like to say that I didn't have time to feel sorry for myself. My uh, my one, my daughter was one year, uh, was only a year old, and uh, I just kept thinking about her and, and my wife at the time. And, um, you know, it, 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 you know, I went through all the, uh, why me and, and, you know, pain that I suffered, but, um, you know, it, it didn't take long before I knew that I had to work hard to get my life back. So you're not just a triathlete. I want to let people know you finished 86 triathlons in four years, inc- including four Ironmans, making you the first double arm amputee Ironman ever. Yes, and actually, uh, I finished my 89th in oh. the uh, the Bahamas uh, about three weeks ago. So uh, I'm keep I keep adding to it uh, every other weekend. Why do you do it? I mean, obviously because it feels good and you like it. But th- but there's got to be more to it, Hector. What's your message? What do you what do you hope people get for themselves when they see what you're doing? Well, number one, I want them to see me doing it and say, "Wow, there's no reason why I can't do it as well." Uh, but I go out there and I'm, I, you know, I love competing. I love uh, nothing brings me more joy to pass somebody on the bike and they have to do a double take because they can't believe what they just saw. So uh, I definitely enjoy it. And that's a, a pretty good example of the fact that your life, uh, obviously a life of inspiration, but it's become a life of accommodation. You've got to figure out ways how to do things that the rest of us take for granted. And certainly triathlon's a great example of that. I mean, you you obviously got some modifications on your bike at least, right? Yeah, the original modifications I did myself, um, you know, I, I created a device to play basketball, to play softball, 
the different sports that I do, uh, you know, I had to create uh, devices of my own to be able to accomplish them. And not just for yourself, but now you're turning it around and you're trying to pay it forward. Tell us a little bit about DontStopLiving.org. Well, it's it's a um, it's a source that I use so so people can visit the site and and you know for inspiration. I use it in order to um, do a lot of fundraising. Um, it's not it's not a five hundred one three C. So what I do is I use um, myself and my ability to attract attention to myself for certain causes. Um, over the summer, I rode my bike from Miami to Spokane, Washington, to raise money for a little boy's prosthetics. Um, and then in uh, about three weeks, I'm doing a uh, double Ironman distance for a place called BCC Kids, uh, Broward Children's Center. And, uh, you know, I feel my mission is to help children with uh, disabilities. And um, everything I do from now on is going to be to that, uh, to, you know, that mission. Folks, we're talking to Hector Picard, who uh, was in a tragic electrical accident 22 years ago and had both of his arms amputated. And and if you ever think that you can't make a difference in someone's lives, just listen to what this guy is doing to help others in the aftermath uh, of what happened to him. Um, You know, Hector, it's got to feel good to know that you have the ability uh, to, to do what you're doing to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I thank God every day for for having legs to be able to do what I do. Uh, everything is is that I do is powered by my legs and and um, you know and, and and the creativity to 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 you know create these devices that make my life easier. Uh, yeah, definitely, uh, I'm very thankful. Hector, tell us about the uh, you know not your outlook on things, but what about the outlook of people you meet on the street, people you bump into in life, or friends? Do they treat you different, or are, are people kind of funky towards you? Um, I get all kinds of uh, reactions, um, but yeah, people stare and people ask me questions. But I get a lot of thumbs up, and you know I've been in races where people will stop what they're doing, hug me, and tell me that I helped them finish the race. Uh, those kind of things are just, you know, uh, priceless. Uh, they keep me going. And, you know, it is amazing, and I didn't realize that this was part of your story, that you actually have designed and invented some contraptions to help you do what you want. That said, there's just been an amazing explosion in the quality of prosthetics, uh, you know, maybe due largely to, to these wounded warriors coming home. Do you use prosthetics, and how much have they changed for your arms? Oh yeah, the um, my my model hasn't changed a lot. I mean, some of the stuff now is is a lot better than what I use, but um, I, I'm dependent on the uh, what they call the myoelectric arm. I use it for work. Uh, I use it for you know things that I do, eating, dressing myself, all the different things I need to to do in life. Very very helpful, and uh, be very difficult without. We'd understand totally, Hector, too, if you want, you know, if this pulled you inward and if you want, you know, still did everything you're doing, but you didn't like to talk about it or didn't want to be in public. We want to, first of all, congratulate you for wanting to make a difference for other people and ask you simply, do you get tired of being that guy? No, no. I, I think about the bigger and better things that, that call more attention to my causes. And, um, you know, I, I have no problem with that. That's, you know, that's my role in life now, and uh, I'm going to make the most of it. Folks, he is an amazing athlete, uh, an incredible human being, someone who continues to move forward himself, even in the aftermath of, of a tragic accident. His name is Hector Picard. If you'd like to learn more about him, learn more about the causes that he supports and perhaps get involved, just go to DontStopLiving.org, and uh, we guarantee you, you will be inspired. Hector, thanks so much for your time. If you haven't already, check out Growing Boulder TV on public television stations around the country. And we invite you to subscribe to our one-of-a-kind Growing Boulder magazine, packed with inspiring stories, tips, tools, everything you need to help make the rest of your life the best of your life. Yeah, you know what? It's also the perfect gift for anyone you know who needs a little inspiration to get off the couch and get into life. 
Just go to GroinBoulder.com slash subscribe, where you can also sign up for our free newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook as well. Folks, we will see you next time right here. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded live at Growing Boulder's studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Director of technology is Joshua Doolittle. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Something to protect